0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Dracula class. This is class number six of uh, our Dracula discussion. Uh, getting to the point of the book where things really begin to heat up this week. Uh, okay, things have been kind of warmish, you know, recently. But uh, uh, but I've been really looking forward to this particular segment and next one too. Um, Uh, So, uh, great. I just wanted to uh, start off, I've announced these before, but just wanted to remind you that the registration is open for Signum University's summer classes. If you would like to sit in and audit a class, or consider taking a class for credit, Um, then I encourage you to look into our summer courses. In particular, I've mentioned this before, I want to sort of, I'm going to kind of spotlight some of our classes over the next few weeks. And uh, Today I wanted to uh, spotlight, again, I've talked about it some, the uh, Mythologies of Love and Sex class that we're running. Um, Just such a fascinating opportunity. It's just such a neat topic. I'm really excited about this class. I've been really excited ever since uh, the class was suggested to me, and I was like, yeah, we should totally do this. Um, It's um, it's a really fascinating subject because and actually I've been kind of reminded of this uh, even in just sort of thinking through for tonight's Dracula class as you'll see when we get into it in a little bit um, but our own the modern perception not just of sort of the particular role of romantic love in stories um, you know as we've talked about before like why is it that you know happily ever after stories end with marriages right what, why exactly should that be um, that was not always so, and how did it get to be there? Well, there's that question, which is really interesting, but also, how is it that love came to mean what it means now, or rather only what it means now? Um, modern people get really uncomfortable uh, often when they learn that back in the Middle Ages, what is cur- uh, uh, commonly called nowadays the early modern period. Um, people used to uh, routinely express affection, physical affection, uh, for their siblings and family. Like, you you would routinely kiss your mother and father on the lips. Like, that's a normal thing, right? Uh, You know, those those kinds of expressions of affection um, were normal. Why why do we only associate hugging and kissing in that way uh, with erotic love now? Why, how did erotic love get into the position of almost incredible privilege that it has in our society now. So what's going on with this? And how, this is something I, I used to run into all the time teaching medieval literature. Whenever people were talking about love, I'd usually have to stop and say, now, let's remember, that doesn't necessarily mean sex. Like, there are other kinds of love other than sexual desire. Um, and um, anyway, so it's... it's Anyway, it's going to be really interesting to kind of, uh, you know, back up and look at this sort of the large scope of, uh, of sort of historical and literary um, uh, uh, sort of progression uh, from, you know, ancient days and medieval days um, up through the more modern period and to see how these concepts and ideas develop both uh, sort of historically through, uh, in sort of uh, in, in, in concept uh, and in literature. So anyway... Uh, th- I just wanted to really encourage you to be thinking about this. Exactly, yeah. Brandon, the uh, uh, the, the, the Four Loves by C.S. Lewis is going to be one of the texts, that, which is uh, um, which he's going to be sort of beginning with. So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, good. Okay. So. Wanted to encourage you to look that up again. That's the Mythologies of Love and Sex uh, with uh, Professor Brenton Dickison, and it's going to be again offered in the summer. You can go to uh, either signumuniversity.org org or mythgard.org org and click on our current classes, and it will bring you to uh, uh, it'll it'll bring you to the list, and you can uh, you can um, check it out more. So, okay, let's uh, go back to we were just at the. In, with inside the tomb of dead miss lucy uh when her remarkably fresh looking corpse uh is fi- was finally breaking down uh John Seward's heavy resistance um, and uh, but uh, I should pause first because we're going to be covering some. Shocking material this evening. Um, uh, This is going to be very difficult for everybody. So I just wanted to make sure before we begin, does everybody have a flask of brandy under their seats just in case? Because I would really, I wouldn't want anybody to be caught unprepared in case you need a medical intervention. Um, I was... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> James says, I already got it started. Oh, good, good. I, I, I'm glad you're you're bolstering yourself, James. Um, uh, if it's within 100 feet, Lydia, it's probably okay. But, you know, I can sort of imagine, like, the, uh, the safety demonstrations that they must have done in, the, like, the Victorian stagecoach or something, right? Like, in the case of an emergency, a flask of brandy will drop down from the compartment over your head. Um, anyway, I, I think, uh, I, you know, that's, I, I assume, that's sort of how it... Uh, how it worked. But anyway, okay, all right. Seriously, let's uh let's 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 jump back into things. Okay, so here's where we were. Um having finally, it seems, overcome Dr. Seward's reluctance and his skepticism. Not just his skepticism, his real unwillingness to believe. And we were looking at that. Remember, we were, talk- we're talking about not, not merely the fact that Dr. Seward was skeptical, but the, uh, the real inveteracy of his skepticism, his, his reluctance, more than reluctance, active resistance to considering other possibilities. the way, And I was even making a parallel. By the way, I didn't even think of this parallel ever before until reading it this past time. Um, so I'm really excited about this. You remember that scene where uh, uh, Dr. Stewart himself observes of Mrs. Westenra that there seems to be, you know, Dame Nature seems to have like be drawing this protective sort of envelope around itself, right? That, you know, since Mrs. Westenra knows that any sudden shock will kill her she seems to be, like, actively disengaging herself from anything that might be stressful. And, and in that, Dr. Seward said, he could read, you know, he, he could sort of interpret you know, sort of nature's uh, desperate attempt to, to sort of cling to life in that. Okay? Um, so, um, I think we can see, I think, the same kind of thing with Dr. Seward himself, right? When confronted with something which just is not explicable, in any way that he can explain, as Quincy Morris says, so, you know what took the blood? Something has to have taken the blood out of Lucy. Um, he knows it didn't just drain out, because, as he himself says, the blood would have been drenched scarlet with the amount of blood that she's lost. Therefore, something must have taken it out of her. There's no real other conclusion that you can come to. It's gone. It 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 was. It 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 was, and it is not, as Van Helsing says, right. Dr. Seward seems just to refuse to allow his mind even to go down that road of asking that question, right? Anyway, okay. So, when faced with the medical evidence, mind, remember, the disappearing, reappearing body was not proof, right? He was willing to entertain the idea that, like, body snatchers came and put it back again afterwards, or for some reason... uh, uh, you know, maybe they only needed, like, the spleen, and they removed the spleen and put the rest of the body back in or something, right? You know, that, so the disappearing, reappearing body doesn't convince him, despite the fact that the leaden coffin suggests that it couldn't have really been tampered with uh, before that. But anyway, the the thing that finally brings him back around is the... Um, <laughs> You're right, your Tom. It could be repentant body snatchers. I hadn't thought of that, right? Yes, they, they snatched the body and they felt really bad about it and brought it back. It, it could certainly happen. Um, but uh, anyway, okay, okay, so uh, uh, what finally does convince him is the is the medical evidence, right? When, uh, when Van Helsing says most people, uh, after being one week dead, would not look so, right? And Dr. Seward can't refute that. The fact is he knows she's dead. And, yeah, I mean, he was her doctor. Um, he knows that she was dead, and yet she's not decomposing, and that doesn't happen. That he can't deny, right? That seems to be the final thing that overcomes him. So this uh, triggers Van Helsing's first vampire lecture, right? In which he finally reveals, finally reveals some of what he knows about vampires. Here, there is one thing which is different from all recorded. Here is some dual life that is not as the common. She was bitten by the vampire when she was in a trance, sleepwalking. Oh, you start! You do not know that, friend John, but you shall know it all later. And in trance, could he best come to take more blood. In trance, she died, and in trance, she is undead, too. So it is that she differ from all other. Usually, when the undead sleep at home... As he spoke, he made a comprehensive sweep of his arm to designate what to a vampire was home... Their face show what they are, but this this so sweet that was when she not undead she go back to the nothings of the common dead. There is no malign there, see, and it and so it make hard that I must kill her in her sleep. Van Elsling once again showing his habitual delicacy uh, and uh, in uh, in of of, of phrasing. This turned my blood cold and it began to dawn upon me that I was accepting Van Helsing's theories. But if she were really dead, what was there of terror in the idea of killing her? So, um, when we come back, so so notice how he kind of comes back around, right? The first thing, he's convinced by the medical evidence, and he sort of catches himself here having a sort of visceral response, right? Recognizing, you know, he, re- he it, 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 Even his reaction to, uh, even the fact that his blood runs cold when he says we must kill her in her sleep, he recognizes, wait, if I were really convinced that she were already dead, I wouldn't be feeling chilled by that. I would be laughing at him, right? But I'm not laughing at him. Um, so that, this is kind of what brings it home to him that like, oh my gosh, I actually am believing this, right? Here's me believing this, um, that that kind of way he catches himself out there, uh, I think, is really sort of revealing about exactly how deep this resistance uh, to the idea um, goes. <laughs> Carolyn Morehouse says, Van Helsing, trying to lead Dr. Seward to the truth is like taking a cat for a walk on a leash. Uh, yeah, 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 something like that. Um, uh, the... Now, notice when he says some dual life which is not as the common, uh, uh, right? Uh, James thinks that that phrase is funny, like he read it in the field guide or something, or the field guide to vampires, right? Um, notice he's saying more than just like, this is unusual for most... Th- she's, she's different from most dead people, right? He's not just saying that, that of course is certainly true. But he's saying more than that, right? He's saying it's not just that she's unlike most dead people, she's unlike most vampires as well. Uh, this is something which is really not... Um, that's why he says, so it is that she differ from all other, right? She differs from normal living or dead people. And she differs from other vampires as well, right? And because he goes on from that statement, from the she differ from all other, all other statement, uh, to illustrate how she differs from vampires, right? Most vampires, when the undead sleep at home, their face show what they are. Remember when Jonathan sees Dracula in repose, and he's horrified by what he sees. Much more horrified than... Of course, he's horrified by like the fact that there's blood on his mouth and he's grown younger. But um, but the, remember the malevolence in his face? The basilisk horror that actually freezes Jonathan and makes him miss with the shovel? And apparently had a similar effect. Not the shovel bit, perhaps. But um, uh, with the first mate on the ship. Remember who screams out and comes bolting up? Um... So Van Helsing says, according to his records, which again are borne out by the experience that we've had, or that, uh, the things, the, well, fortunately not that we've had, but that we've uh, uh, read about, um, the vampire in repose reveals the evil that they are. Dracula could hide it when he was conscious right? You know, he could be suave and urbane and polite and everything to Jonathan and fool him for some time um, that he was just a well-intentioned, if eccentric, Transylvanian nobleman. Um, When he's dead, when he's asleep, when he is at home, he can't do that. So this is where we can see, Van Helsing argues, that Lucy is different, right? Um, When she's sleeping, her evil is not exposed She goes back to the nothings of the common... She looks like a normal dead body, right? Um, So, um, okay. Um, Which is what makes it hard that he must kill her in his sleep. So, Uh, okay, now, this, I think, is a really fascinating moment. Um, When Van Helsing, again, he acknowledges, as he acknowledged at the beginning... I understand how resistant you are to this. I understand how hard this is to accept, right? This rundown is, I think, an important one. If you who saw the wounds on Lucy's throat and saw the wounds so similar on the child's at the hospital, if you, who saw the coffin empty last night and full today with a woman who have not changed, only to be more rose and more beautiful in a whole week after she die, if you know of this and know of the white figure last night that brought the child to the churchyard and yet of your own senses you did not believe, how then can I expect Arthur, who know none of these things, to believe? Right? Um... So, again, he, he acknowledges. Um, the problem is not sort of having evidence, right? It's not that he's, uh, you know, remember he, when he began, he, he, he begins with Dr. Seward by just asking him, just sort of banking on his personal credit with Dr. Seward, right? I just ask you to trust me because you know me and you know you know you respect me and you know that I you know care about you and care about Lucy and trust me right um now at the end he goes back through this is, look at all this evidence that you had right there is an obvious explanation that ties together all of these things you can make all of these things fit together really easily if you're willing to accept the one premise that will tie all of this evidence together. Um, In other words, the problem is not with the amount of evidence. The problem is not with Dr. Seward's brain, right? It's not that he's not smart enough to put all this together. It's not that he hasn't seen enough or noticed enough or didn't have enough data. He had all of those things. The problem is his unwillingness to believe. And, of course, Arthur has less data... And has greater reason for unwillingness to believe uh, that you know the, the sort of the emotional reaction against it remember that uh, that, uh, d- that 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 um, Dr. Seward had remember when doctors when Van Helsing first says the marks on the children's thro- throat were made by Miss Lucy um, Dr. Seward responds as if somebody had struck Lucy's face while she was alive right and he jumps up and he's all offended and right um. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Tom uh, uh, Tom Hillman says it's Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is that she's a vampire. It, it absolutely is. Um, it is even the most... It is the most rational explanation of all of those. Any, I mean, as we saw of, like the body snatcher stuff and everything else, any other explanation of the data is... I mean, from from a purely rational standpoint, far more unlikely. And this, of course, should make us remember Jonathan back in the first four chapters and him clinging to logic, reason, evidence, right? Putting the data together. But, of course, he went where the data were taking. He didn't want to go there, and he was concerned about it, right? And so he kept, like like double and triple checking his results right um but you know and going over everything to make sure that imagination was not running riot with him right um but um anyway so um but again but dr seward was not even willing to go there and and the next morning he relapses right it is wonderful what a good night's sleep will do for one. Yesterday I was almost willing to accept Van Helsing's monstrous ideas, but now they seem to start out lurid before me as outrageous on common sense. I have no doubt that he believes it all. I wonder if his mind can have become in any way unhinged. Surely there must be some rational explanation of all these mysterious things. Is it possible that the professor can have done it himself?" He is so abnormally clever that if he went off his head, he would carry out his intent with regard to some fixed idea in a wonderful way. I'm loath to think of it, and indeed it would be almost as great a marvel as the other to find that Van Helsing was mad. But anyhow, I shall watch him carefully. I may get some light on the mystery. Okay. There is another explanation, right? It could be... Good. James Stevens points out it's just like the ship captain thinking that the mate killed all the other men. Yes. Yes. Um... Uh, exactly, exactly. Um, so, okay, yes, yes, it's theoretically possible. Except, no, that's actually not really a very rational explanation. Or when we put that explanation up against Van Helsing's explanation, the vampirism one, um, it seems um, less convincing. It answers the facts less well, right? Uh, so how does this explain the fact that her body hasn't decomposed at all in a week? Uh, is that did Van Helsing disguise the body in some way? Has there been some kind of cosmetic slash medical strange thing that he has done in order to make Lucy's body, which is clearly Lucy's body? John John recognizes it. Um, I mean. Get, uh, no, it really doesn't fit. Um, uh, uh, it really doesn't fit the data, or you have to really strain it to fit the data. There must be some rational explanation. Yes, there is a rational explanation of all these mysterious things. It makes me think of that, um, that that uh, you know that very often quoted um, expression. Of Sherlock Holmes is right. Uh, once you eliminate the impossible, the uh, impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Yeah, but the trick is the that impossible business, right? Van Helsing would not approve of Sherlock Holmes's dictum, right? And you see why, because Van Helsing would say, "Yeah, but if your mind is closed to possibilities, then you are going to rule out as impossible." Something which may, in fact, be possible, but just not something you want to think about. right? So, in fact, to sort of stick to your guns, notice the, the two words that really jump out at me in, in, in the first sentence, second sentence here. Monstrous, right? These Van Helsing's ideas are monstrous, not in the sense that they are about monsters, which would be perfectly true. Um, but rather, the ideas themselves are monstrous, right? And common sense. Right? Outrages on common sense. It's not irrational. Right? It's not impossible. It's an outrage of common sense. Most people don't believe that. Right? Um... Yeah, yeah. Good. Carolyn Morehouse says, Dr. Seward is perhaps exhibiting his own type of madness, a mania that has its basis in doing mental gymnastics that ignores the reality right in front of... Yeah, yeah. I mean, that... um, I mean, that's... You know, we've seen madness. Madness has been another motif all the way through the book, right? From Jonathan's concerns about his own madness um, up through, of course, with Renfield and, and, you know, the, the lunatic asylum and all that stuff. Um what's the difference between someone who is mad and someone who is sane, right? Um, well, doesn't it have something to do with the fact that the way that you look at the world, what you believe about the world, actually matches with the world, right? Um, the more distance there is between the world you live in and the world everybody else lives in, that's, the the more reason to suspect madness there is, right? Um, so again, you can see what leads him to well, see, here's Van Helsing saying this, which is an outrage on common sense, right? Everybody would say that that what Van Helsing said couldn't possibly be true, um, and uh, uh, so that must be bad, right? Well, yeah, unless it's actually true, and you you will remember, of course, that later on Van Helsing will come and turn this around right. and say no, actually, acceptance of the idea of vampires is practically universal. It's us. It's our society. It might be against an outrage on common sense of 19th century England, but 19th century England is the aberration, not the rule. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Lee Smith says that uh, uh, P.G. Wodehouse characters like to say something like, never confuse the improbable with the impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um... Anyway, okay. Well, after they have the confrontation, after the four of them, Van Helsing, Seward, uh, Arthur, and Quincy Morris, uh, go have their night vigil at the tomb and confront dead Miss Lucy... There is no more talk of this. this the, uh, we, have, we finally come to the end of the skeptical resistance theme uh, as, it is, uh, uh, as it is developed. And we still have a concern, perhaps, about what other people might think. Um, but everybody now who is involved is now on the inside as far as this goes and needs no further convincing, despite how, uh, how these things might seem like an outrage to, to later day belief in looking at dead miss lucy and looking at this confrontation i find this confrontation extremely revealing there were a lot of tantalizing bits and although we kind of did a review of like you know saw made sure that we could keep straight what we could learn about the strengths and weaknesses of of, of the vampire when we you know, we spent a lot of time talking about that in the first couple classes as we were looking at um you know what how dracula was described and what we see from his interaction with jonathan and all that kind of thing i kind of resisted at the time um, doing, kind of going any deeper with that. Like, what exactly is vampirism about? Like, what's, you know, sort of thematically what, what's going on there? How do we understand what what it means to be a vampire in, in any kind of a deeper sense than merely what happens and what do vampires look like and act like? Um, and I, 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 I didn't go into it then. That We got a lot of stuff, right? We gather a lot of data about Dracula and about those three female vampires who come to Jonathan. Um, now, we have that. We should keep that in the back of our mind. Um, uh, you know, or As Van Helsing would say, we take him and cherish him. Uh, but anyway, let's now look at Lucy. So I think that when Lucy comes on the scene here, a lot of things really show up in pretty sharp relief that we might perhaps have made mistakes about before. Um, we see a lot that's familiar in the description of Lucy, a lot of things that we should be recalling, and I'd love for you to point those out. As become like, tell me, what do you recognize? Um, what should we be recalling from before? What connections should we be making between Lucy and what we've already seen in vampires? But then we also get some, more, uh, some, some things underlined uh, really prominently. The figure stopped, and at the moment a ray of moonlight fell upon the masses of driving clouds and showed in startling prominence a dark-haired woman dressed in the cerements of the grave. Um, has there ever been a film version which depicted Lucy as anything but a blonde? She's not a blonde. Lucy's a brunette, clearly. Dark-haired woman, right? She's almost always depicted as a blonde, isn't she? Um, uh, anyway... We could not see the face, for it was bent down over what we saw to be a fair-haired child. There was a pause and a sharp little cry, such as a child gives in sleep, or a dog as it lies before the fire in dreams. We were starting forward, but the professor's warning hand, seen by us as he stood behind a yew tree, kept us back, and then as we looked the white figure moved forwards again. It was now near enough for us to see clearly, and the moonlight still held. My own heart grew cold as ice, and I could hear the gasp of Arthur as we recognized the features of Lucy Westenra. Lucy Westenra, but how, but yet how changed. The sweetness was turned to adamantine, heartless cruelty, and the purity to voluptuous wantonness. Van Helsing stepped out, and, obedient to his gesture, we all advanced too. The four of us ranged in a line before the door of the tomb. Van Helsing raised his lantern and drew the slide. By the concentrated light that fell on Lucy's face, we could see that the lips were crimson with fresh blood, and that the stream had trickled over her chin and stained the purity of her long death robe. Good, yes, Sarah Lagarde, the adamantine cruelty. The adamantine reference is similar to the those mineral and jewel depictions of the Dracula women. Yeah, yeah, I remember they were we got crystal and gems and, and uh, lots of inorganic... Uh, things uh, used to uh, lots of inorganic imagery, absolutely, um, and of course, yes, Kimber. Needless to say, she's uh, she's voluptuous, and as Kimber also points out, once again, um, um, once again, we get um, the, uh, the 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 vampire female vampires preying on children thing. In fact, we've seen vampire women feed on. Children, mostly, and we've seen them succeed in feeding on children and attempts to feed on men. Right, that's all we've seen. Um, okay. Um, more. Notice the pattern. This seems really simple, uh, perhaps, but uh, crucial, uh, I think, in leading into what we—the pattern that we can see as we begin to look at the whole picture. Sweetness turned to adamantine heartless cruelty. Sweetness to cruelty. The purity to wantonness. So we have this inversion of her character, of her moral character, right? The difference between dead Miss Lucy and undead Miss Lucy. Remember when she was dying, right? When she was in trance, when she was not in trance, when she was asleep, or when she was awake, right? You know, when she'd be, like, pulling the garlics to her and pushing it away from her, and, you know, the the, the very directly opposite impulses, um, that we could see at work between sort of human Lucy and, uh, vampire Lucy, bloofer Lucy, James, yes, exactly. Um, uh, Yes. Good. Good. Um, so wait. Okay. So does this mean? Does this mean that when she turns into a vampire, she's just the opposite? That vampire Lucy is just a mirror image of living Lucy, right? Like a like a you know sort of a black and white reverse image, right? Is that is that it? So just black equals white now and it's just everything's been turned completely upside down I think Arthur I'm not sure about this I believe that lawn is the actual is the kind of fabric if anybody knows more than I do about this please feel free to weigh in but I think it's just the it's 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 referring to the 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 particular the cerements of the grave the particular um, uh, fabric that they used yeah it's a type of muslin Sharon says there you go um uh, yeah, yeah, it's a very sheer white fabric, Sarah Lagarde says. I knew that there'd be people who know more about this than I did. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, so it's, um, so it's that, that's just, it's just her grave clothes. Um, okay, good. Now, Nick Moranzo says it's a more complete corruption than a simple reversal. Um, yes, I agree. And here I come back to the children. Why children um i remember uh <laughs> sorry something i have mentioned before that i used to teach this book every semester in my english 101 class uh you know my fr- my freshman english class uh back in the old days and um, you know, so I sometimes get, you know, in the middle of class we'll kind of get, get flashbacks <laughs> to freshman English. You know, I would ask the question, like, why does Lucy only prey on children? And the answer I kept getting would be things like, because children are easier to get! And I'm like, yeah, no. There's, there's no... I mean, when you can exert the kind of mental control that vampires presumably can, there's a, you know, anyway. Um, more. Let's, let's, let's Let's keep going. When Lucy, I call the thing that was before us Lucy, because it bore her shape, saw us, she drew back with an angry snarl, such as a cat gives when taken unawares. Then her eyes ranged over us. Lucy's eyes in form and color, but Lucy's eyes unclean and full of hellfire, instead of the pure gentle orbs we knew. At that moment the remnant of my love passed into hate and loathing. Had she then to be killed, I could have done it with savage delight as she looked her eyes blazed with unholy light and the face became wreathed with a voluptuous smile oh god how it made me shudder to see it with a careless motion she flung to the ground callous as a devil the child that up to now she had clutched strenuously to her breast growling over it as a dog growls over a bone the child gave a sharp cry and lay there moaning There was a cold-bloodedness in the act which wrung a groan from Arthur. When she advanced to him with outstretched arms and a wanton smile, he fell back and hid his face in his hands. Yes. Yes. Megan and Lee, I completely agree with you. Let's get there. Let's get there here. Notice. Notice the pattern. Notice the pattern. How, first of all, how is she standing? Did remind me of the image that Dr. Seward has just described for us. What are they seeing? They're seeing Lucy coming down the path. What, what, what's she doing? What did they see? Let's go back. Let's go back. All right. Okay, the white figure moves towards us again. Uh, okay, we recognize the features of Lucy Westenra. Um. Okay, no, sorry, further up here. We could not see the face, for it was bent down over what we saw to be a fair-haired child. Right, and there's a sharp little cry. The child gives a sharp little cry. Right? And then in... Uh, um, then in this... First, so we get... Um, yeah yeah you got it you got it so nick exact she's cradling the child to her breast right and she's got her face down like she's nuzzling it or something right um so like back up back up like five paces right you're a stranger right you don't know anything about Lucy. You don't know this is a dead person you're seeing. You're just like out for a stroll in a locked graveyard for some reason in the middle of the night. And you come across this woman dressed in white with a child in her arms. What's your first thought? Right? Looks like a, looks like a mom. Right? Looks like a mom. It looks completely commonplace. Right? It looks like the affection of a mother. But then look at the, other, the next two images that we get. Describing her and her relationship with the child right one um, Kimber as you point out she's like a dog with a bone right um, she's she uh, she was clutching the child strenuously to her breast as a mother might do under some circumstances uh, what circumstances under what circumstances would a woman normally clutch a child strenuously to her breast? When would that? To protect it! Exactly! To keep it safe! And yet, Nancy, I do think, and Nancy and Nick are both thinking about, about, about breastfeeding. I absolutely think that we're supposed to be thinking about breastfeeding here. Because if you think about it, there's even a transfer of fluids going on here. In fact, there is a transfer of fluids designed to nourish going on here, but it's flowing the wrong way. Instead of giving of the fluids of her own body and her own strength to nourish a child, she is drinking from the child and taking its strength to herself to strengthen herself at its expense. Right? It is an inversion of the maternal relationship. And she's not clutching it strenuously in order to protect it and keep it safe, as a mother might, right? But out of possessiveness, and not the kind of possessiveness that a mother might feel, right? But the kind of possessiveness that a dog feels over a bone if you try to take the bone out of the dog's mouth. And then the third, the third image that we have for her, We've got that the visual image, which is like maternity. We've got the the dog imagery, which remember is is like the we, we got that with the Dracula's women too, right the bestial like remember when uh, Jonathan could hear her licking her lips right like an animal. Um, so we have that sort of bestial feeding thing going on. and yes, Carolyn the third is the callous devil right with a ca- as callous as a devil, she just flings the child to the ground. And it's that, it's that which rings a groan from Arthur. Why? Why? That's his wife, right? It's his fiancée. This is the woman that he, you know, had thought, hoped, dreamed would be the mother of his own children. And to see her in this horror not just, not just opposite of motherhood right this horrible inversion uh, and i the word that several of you have been using is the word that i would use too perversion of motherhood because you see it's not just opposite right it's not just you take the one thing and you flip it around backwards there is a lot of inversion going on in this but it's more than that right it's or rather it's different than that it's worse than that it's like you know a mother loves the child but she hates the child that would be inversion right simple inversion would be if she just hated children but she doesn't hate children she loves children she absolutely adores children but the love is incredibly twisted it is inverted. It is perverted. Love, exactly. James says she's an unmother, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, the love, the attachment between mother and child, between woman and child, is there. It's still there, but it's instead being made the vehicle of this horrible, devilish perversion. Of that love. Exactly, Philip. Selfish rather than giving. There's so many, uh, selfish rather than selfless, Jennifer was just saying. Exa- There's so many ways in which it works. The more you think about it, the more it works, right? Um, and the more uh, sort of perfect in this horrible, horrifying, um, groaning way, like Arthur, right? Um, it is, it is corruption, Sharon, exactly, yeah. Um, it's, it's, it does, again, it does more than just reverse love takes that love and it twists it. This is why vampire women eat children, right? It's because of the mother thing. And we know the mother thing isn't just us, right? How do we know we're not just projecting this? Because the book talks about this, right? Just later on, uh, just a few pages down the road, remember Mina and Arthur? In an instant, this is Arthur Freaking out, in in an instant the poor dear fellow was overwhelmed with grief. It seemed to me that all that he had of late been suffering in silence found a vent at once. He grew quite hysterical, and raising his open hands, beat his palms together in a perfect agony of grief. He stood up and then sat down again, and the tears rained down his cheeks. I felt an infinite pity for him, and opened my arms unthinkingly. With a sob he laid his head on my shoulder and cried like a wearied child, whilst he shook with emotion. We women have something of the mother in us that makes us rise above smaller matters when the mother spirit is invoked. I felt this big sorrowing man's head resting on me as though it were that of the baby that some day may lie on my bosom, and I stroked his hair as though he were my own child. I never thought at the time how strange it all was. By that, Right, I never thought at the time how strange it all was. I remember when I first read this book, and I got to that line, I was like, "Oh my gosh, that was horribly foreboding! Like, wh- what's going to happen? What's going to end up happening with Arthur and Mina? Like, oh no, like, no, it's not that. All she means, I believe, is that, um, uh, is that like the incredible breach of propriety, right? I mean, I, I think this. It, it's hard for us as 21st century people, to have this passage hit us in quite the way I think it would have hit people in 1897. I mean, you don't do this, right? She's a married woman. They're alone in a room together, the married woman and this other dude, right? That She's just met for the first time, and she's embracing him, and he's putting his head on her shoulder, and she's petting his hair. I mean, like, that's kind of scandalous. Married women don't behave like that. That's really strange, right? But it's fine, Right? And everybody understands, and everybody just makes everybody love Mina more, because who doesn't love Mina? She's awesome, right? But, um, but you see what overcomes it? Right? I never thought at the time how strange it all was. Means, and not for a second was I concerned. Like, the mother spirit arose in her so strongly that it absolutely overwhelmed her normally quite active sense of propriety. Right? Because that's the the strength and the power of that uh, mother spirit that makes them ri- that makes women rise above smaller matters right and compared with the mother in them even propriety which in 1897 is a big deal is a small matter right um so um yeah yeah anyway um so um uh, I see, Yana. Yana says nothing bad can happen because the narrator uh, to the narrator because they need to survive to write the entry. That normally that's normally true, right? But given how often these are updated, we lose that security, (laughs) right? And since the narration keeps jumping around, you never know when somebody's uh, journal entry might be their last. But anyway, um, exactly, Jennifer. Mina had taught girls propriety, right? She had been she had that that had been her job. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Mary asks, uh, are we meant to draw a parallel between how Mina is shown as motherly here and the previous image of Lucy? Uh, Yeah, I do think so. In a sense, that is to say, what we see here is we're kind of reminded here um, of that spontaneous maternal impulse. Um, It's a kind of a touchstone for what we were seeing. I mean, I I think it's, it's fairly powerful in the Lucy scene all by itself, um, even without this. But in case we needed the reminder, we get one here, right? We, we do get that reminder that um, the, uh, the, the mother spirit uh, is, uh, is very powerful, that this is the, the natural, the wholesome, uh, the, I won't go as far as to say sacred, um, but certainly very good and very healthy um, love of women. Lucy, vampire Lucy, has that like, and it's it's if that love were merely taken away and turned into hatred, that would be one thing. But instead it is taken and it is twisted to this horrible, sickening, um you know, selfish, predatory uh thing. And that's really awful. But wait it's not just that. She still advanced, however, and with a languorous, voluptuous grace, said "'Come to me, Arthur. Leave these others and come to me. My arms are hungry for you. Come, and we can rest together. Come, my husband, come.' There was something diabolically sweet in her tones, something of the tingling of glass when struck, which rang through the brains even of us who heard the words addressed to another. As for Arthur, he seemed under a spell.' Moving his hands from his face, he opened wide his arms. She was leaping for them when Van Helsing sprang forward and held between them his little golden crucifix. She recoiled from it, and with a suddenly distorted face full of rage, dashed past him as if to enter the tomb. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Karina, it is a good thing we aren't doing a shot at every voluptuous. When a female vampire comes onto the on 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 stage, uh, that's like a quick recipe for uh, uh, for liver failure. Um, yes, good Mary. That the glass reference is the same as the other female vampires. And Mary, remember, Doctor Seward has not read Jonathan Harkins Jonathan Harker's diary. He's so this is it's not in his mind derivative. He's just reminded of exactly the same thing, right? It's it's like. Um, uh, you know, independent evidence that that's exactly what they sound like. It makes both Jonathan and Dr. Seward think of exactly the same thing. Um, and yes, Nancy, it is interesting that she seems to have some of Lucy's memory. This is not just like an alien thing come from the outside that doesn't know who they are, right? She recognizes Arthur. She knows, she, because that's, uh, that's usually the next question I would have asked my English one-on-one students, right? Why does she talk to Arthur? Why not, you know, I think, you know, when it comes to, like, if she's just looking for, like, to maximize the stalwart manhood, you know, that she, I mean, you'd think she'd go to Quincy, right? Because, I mean, come on. Um, But no, she goes to Arthur, right? Why does she, uh, why does she go to Arthur? Because, well, yeah, she recognizes Arthur, right? And there's this connection between her and Arthur. And we see the same pattern, right? The same perversion of her love for Arthur, and her desire to pervert Arthur's love for her, right? To twist that into, you know... Think about... Think back to Arthur's comment at her funeral. That he felt like the transfusion of blood had made them really man and wife. Um, and despite Van Helsing's comical musings on this point later on, um, we can see that comes into effect here again. To what she's inviting him to... Uh, Come to me, my husband... Um, let us join ourselves. Let us be married. Um, it's not sex that she's talking about, though. Right? Like, if Van Helsing and his little golden crucifix aren't there, um, uh, that, that's not where this goes. Um, I, I, Lucy isn't going to have sex with Arthur any more than she was actually breastfeeding the baby. Right? Right? that's the whole point is that it's inverted and again, the amount of effort I had to spend to try to convince people that that's not what this was, that she's not actually trying to seduce him, right? Um, uh, uh, Yeah, exactly, Jennifer, she would kiss him, right? But you're exactly right to put the kiss in quotation marks, just like with Dracula's women, right? They weren't interested in kissing Jonathan either. She laid her lips upon him, right? Upon his throat, uh, but she wasn't kissing him um but she was like tantalizing him with the desire of kisses which although it was kind of naughty as he was engaged and stuff and you know uh i don't know but nevertheless again it's it's it was okay, even that um but that if it was anything was the perversion of a mere flirtation right and an illicit flirtation because he's a you know spoken for, Jonathan was, right? This is a perversion of marriage itself, right? Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Remember, uh, do you remember the reference I'm making in my subtitle here? Um, Do you remember that first letter that Mina wrote to Lucy? Lucy, after she was married to Jonathan and she pauses at the moment, she says, then um uh the, I, oh, I can't remember this the I'm spiking on the sentence. Um something like then I took the hand of my husband. And she pauses and says, My dear Lucy, it is the first time I have ever used the words my husband, right? Um because she's just been the first letter she's written since she's been married, right? what a big deal it is the way that we in which in that little expression we can see you know the full solemnity and the significance of the you know the, the sanctity of that moment is really kind of coming uh, coming home to her right <laughs> lucy's never called arthur her husband either right this is the first time that lucy ever uses the words my husband and it's horrible again this horrible just cringe-inducing hideous perversion of what was a true, sweet, holy, virtuous love, right? H-O-L-Y, virtuous love. Um, Yeah, and Nick, yeah, it is interesting that um, Arthur comes under her spell instantly. He, He... what does this say about him? I mean, does this say that he's weak? Not necessarily. Um, I mean, Do- Dr. Seward real recognizes she's not talking to him, but yet he's drawn, right? We know that vampires can exert mental control and domination to those who are vulnerable, right? Lucy came to Dracula that first time before she was ever bitten. She came to him when he called. Um, we were lo- you know, we, uh, we looked at that. Arthur, is being called much more directly, right, um, and also has very good emotional reasons to be vulnerable to this particular call. Yeah, exactly, Philip. He was certainly the most vulnerable, yes, uh, most, uh, most sensitive, as Rachel would say, to her call. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, um, Yes, exactly. Leah's pointing to the phrases where we can see how that, yeah, that, that phrase about how it rang through their brains, right? The diabolically sweet toad, right? Um, it, it does show that there's, there is an effect that's more than just appeal, right? She's not only convincing Arthur, um, she is, uh, and even, you know, he seemed under a spell because he was doofus, right? Here's Dr. Seward still not getting it, but whatever. Um, Anyway, yeah, oh, good. Gerald uh, Michael points out Arthur voluntarily came to the cemetery. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's 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 crossed into her domain, just like Lucy uh, uh, crossed into Dracula's domain by standing on the seat uh, at the captain's funeral. Uh, yes, and with more, you know, Arthur certainly with more intention involved in that, right? Um. So okay, so so you see what I mean about the pattern of vampire, and when we think about this, this vampirism as perversion, right? Um, the story begins to become you know, sort of the, the, and by, by story, I mean the whole like vampire thing begins to come uh, a little clearly, but let's uh, um, make sure we understand what we're dealing with here. Um, there was no love in my own heart. This is, she's in the coffin now. "'Nothing but loathing for the foul thing "'which had taken Lucy's shape without her soul. "'I could see even Arthur's face grow hard as he looked. "'Presently, he said to Van Helsing, "'Is this really Lucy's body, or only a demon in her shape? "'It is her body, and yet not it. "'But wait a while, and you all see her as she was— "'And you all see—you—' "'Is that a typo? "'You will see her as she was? "'You all will? "'Is it just his bad English? "'Not sure.' See her as she was and is. She seemed like a nightmare of Lucy as she lay there, the pointed teeth, the blood-stained, voluptuous mouth, which it made one shudder to see, the whole carnal and unspiritual appearance seeming like a devilish mockery of Lucy's sweet purity. Um, A devilish mockery of Lucy's sweet purity. Is this really Lucy's body or only a demon in her shape? It is her body and yet not it. Right? (laughs) Go not to the elves for counsel. Right? Uh, Ask not Van Helsing a a, a multiple choice question. Um, What does he mean by this? Right? It is her body. Right? It's definitely her body. Um, And yet... It's not it, he says. Um, it's... How do we understand this? Again, I think the sort of key to understanding what Van Helsing is getting at comes in in Dr. Seward's description in the next paragraph. Um, the whole carnal and unspiritual appearance seeming like a devilish mockery of Lucy's sweet purity. Um, I don't see, I don't, I think that Dr. Seward and I quite believe that Van Helsing would mean that quite literally. Is it her body or is it a demon? Both. Yes, it's her body. But is it a demon? Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much, yes. It's not Lucy, right? Remember the two Lucys, right? Push, you know, the push away, pull back thing, right? And the, um, you know, it's, a, it's not, it's it's not her, right? They recognize this isn't her. This is not just like this is a side of Lucy that makes us feel uncomfortable, right? It's not Lucy. This is not her. This is a devil in her shape. It's in her body, right? Um, and it does, Nancy, as you were pointing out earlier, have her uh, have her have access to her memories, right? Um, Yes, it's it's unLucy Margaret. Exactly, exactly. It's uh, it's unLucy. Remember all the devil language from the very beginning, right? From Jonathan's first interaction with the peasants. Ask the peasants what a vampire is; they'll tell you, right? Um, it's 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 all you know, uh, Satan and hell and all that stuff, right? Ask Jonathan, right? remember that. The pattern of devil imagery that we were tracing through chapters one through four, um, this keeps coming up. I do not believe that they mean this metaphorically. I think that they mean this quite literally. But what do I mean by that? Well, hang on. We'll come back a little bit more there, Rachel. You are anticipating me directly. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get there in a minute. One last thing about Lucy's destiny, and then we'll 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 widen the the lens a little bit the career of this so unhappy dear lady is but just begun those children whose blood she suck are not as yet so much the worse but if she live on undead more and more they lose their blood and by her power over them they come to her and so she draw their blood with that so wicked mouth but if she die in truth then all cease the tiny wounds of the throats disappear and they go back to their plays unknowing ever of what has been but Of the most blessed of all, when this now undead be made to rest as true dead, then the soul of the poor lady whom we love shall again be free. Instead of working wickedness by night, and growing more debased in the assimilating of it by day, she shall take her place with the other angels, so that, my friend, it will be a blessed hand for her that shall strike the blow that sets her free. Lucy. It's not Lucy, but it is Lucy. Lucy. Lucy is really involved, right? Lucy's body, even Lucy's spirit, it seems, is enslaved, right? Lucy is there, but enslaved. She needs to be set free from this thing, from this external force, from this what? Uh, devil! Yes, James Stevens is remembering the demoniac thing. Yeah, yeah, with the demoniac theory, right? Yeah, just like a demoniac. Exactly. Good. Sarah Lagarde was recalling the same thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Nancy Fosberg says, Does this mean if they'd killed Dracula, Lucy wouldn't have died? Absolutely. It means that that's exactly why Van Helsing and Doctor Seward are face palming when they read the and realize that Dracula lived freaking next door to Doctor Seward, right? You know, that's what his first response. Van Helsing says, "Oh, if we only knew, we might have saved Miss Lucy." And that's exactly Nancy Whitty is thinking, right? Saving her by the uh, by the by the expedient of a judicious application of steak and garlic, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yes, James, does growing more debased mean the good Lucy would fade away eventually? It absolutely does. Remember that reference that we, that we talked about last time, where the feet you love will walk now and forever in paths of flame? Yeah, uh, the, it, it, he says that her, her soul itself would be corrupted. She is tied body and soul uh, to this thing. Her, her body and soul are both being used um, and being corrupted. Um, so, uh... uh, (laughs) Steak and garlic. I didn't mean it that way, Karina. Uh, (laughs) anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, uh, Jennifer asks if they killed Dracula after Lucy died, what would happen to Lucy? Nothing, I think. I think it's too late. Uh, She has to be, she has to be dealt with. Now, again... This still doesn't necessarily help me understand why he d- chose not to cut off her head when, after, remember, he put the crucifix on her lips, and the, the, the maid stole it, and, and then he's like, now it's too late or too early. I still don't really exactly know what he means by that. But, um, but anyway, that sort of overall pattern seems, seems relatively clear. So she's... This is why she doesn't look evil during the daytime, right? Because she has not yet assimilated that evil Right. She, her spirit has not been corrupted. Um, she has been sort of invaded. She's being dominated. Um, but she's not yet herself corrupted. Um, and as we see when she is set free, right? Um, when they kill her undead body, when they drive the stake through her, There, in the coffin, lay no longer the foul thing that we had so dreaded and grown to hate that the work of her destruction was yielded as a a privilege to the one best entitled to it, but Lucy, as we had seen her in her life, with her face of unequalled sweetness and purity. True that there were there, as we had seen them in life, the traces of care and pain and waste, but these were all dear to us, for they marked her truth to what we knew." One and all, we felt that the holy calm that lay like sunshine over the wasted face and form was only an earthly token and symbol of the calm that was to reign forever. Yeah. Yeah, Nancy, and she's also covered in blood, yeah. uh, Totally, yeah, she's got like a stake sticking out of her, right? I mean, it's pretty... But... But they look past all that, right? In this moment, that's not what's important. What is important to them is the spiritual consequence, right? To see that Lucy spiritually has been, physically and spiritually, has been freed. Her body must be killed in order for her spirit to be set free. And her spirit is set free. Okay. Um, You see where all of this is taking us, right? Um, Yeah, no, Rachel, her soul is free. I mean, again, it's I mean, unless we I mean I suppose we could say maybe dr. Seward is wrong and doesn't know what he's talking about here but I don't see any reason to doubt this I mean this this his this seems pretty definite that Lucy's okay right she's she's done she's been set free um, uh, even though Dracula is himself still still not killed well several of you have have anticipated where this is sort of where we're kind of headed from this because you know in, in taking a somewhat wider view of this and and, and continuing to push even further and trying to understand the whole vampirism phenomenon as it's described in this book. And that is me finally coming around to discuss the thing I've been putting off discussing uh, for quite some time, which is all of that Christian biblical language in this book and the way that this story conceptualizes that. Um, So let's start here with the incident which really triggers this uh, in this version, and a couple of you asked me um, about this uh, by email this week, too. As to Van Helsing, this is, of course, right before the Lucy encounter. As to Van Helsing, he was employed in a definite way. First, he took from his bag a mass of what looked like thin wafer-like biscuit. I don't even recognize it out of context, and this is very far removed from its habitual context, which was carefully rolled up in a white napkin. Next, he took out a double handful of some whitish stuff, like dough or putty. He crumbled the wafer up fine and worked it into the mass between his hands. This he then took, and, rolling it into thin strips, began to lay them into the crevices between the door and its setting in the tomb. I was somewhat puzzled at this, and, being close, asked him what it was that he was doing. Arthur and Quincy drew near also, as they too were curious. He answered, "'I am closing the tomb, so that the undead may not enter.' "'And is that stuff you have put there going to do it?' asked Quincy. "'Great, Scott, is this a game?' "'It is.' "'What is that which you are using?' This time the question was by Arthur. Van Helsing reverently lifted his hat as he answered, The host. I brought it from Amsterdam. I have an indulgence. It was an answer that appalled the most skeptical of us, and we felt individually that in the present presence of such earnest purpose as the professors, a purpose which could thus use the to him most sacred of things, it was impossible to distrust. Okay, now you'll notice again, Nick, as you point out, once again, we get the Protestant Catholic thing showing up, right? Just like we got the crucifix and the significance of the crucifix that it was not just you know, even though Jonathan was like as a good English churchman, I' I've, tra- I've been you know trained to view such things as in some measure idolatrous, but it does bring strange comfort to me right about now, right? And now we have not just any old communion waivers, right? He didn't get these at the C of E church down the road. Right? No, 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 no. He brought these from from his Catholic church in Amsterdam. Right? Uh, the host. Um, yeah, yeah, Mary. I also trying am trying to figure out whether the use of the word mass, which he uses twice in that paragraph, is accidental or not. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, Jana It is curious that the very pious Catholic is Dutch, which is yes. Uh, has a long history of uh, of, uh, of of extreme Protestantism. Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, what do we do with this? Right. Um, okay. Let's um. I don't think this is a Catholic-Protestant issue. Again, I said that before when I was talking about the crucifix, right? Um, uh, and uh, I, uh, I think the same thing again. This is not about Catholicism. Um, it's not because Stoker is trying to make a Catholic point that um, he is bringing the host in here. Um, and yeah, Jordan and James, you brought this up by email too, and I agree with you. I think that he's using the wrong word. Um, he says, I have an indulgence. That's not I, He has a dispensation, must be, I think, the, what he means to say. Um, but um, anyway, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's, um, let's take another step back here. Renfield is very helpful here. What does Renfield want? What does Renfield want? Life. Yes. He wants life. He wants more life. Ultimately, immortality. That would be the logical extreme of what he wants, right? Which is why, which is the sense in which he has worshipped Dracula long and afar off, right? Why he acknowledges Dracula as his master and goes over and asks for good things to be given to him, right? Renfield wants what Dracula has. What Dracula has is immortality. Yes, Tom, he wants life, and he wants it more abundantly. That is precisely what Renfield wants. Um, And we get all this biblical language around that in the book. So, let's... uh, Go back for a second. Gospel of John, chapter 6. Context you'll remember, or maybe you won't remember. I shouldn't say this is not, of course, the book we've been reading. If you don't know, in John chapter 6, we've just had the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus has just miraculously multiplied the loaves and the fishes in order to feed... Uh, uh, 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. And th- this went over a treat. Everybody loved this, right? Um, all the people who were fed uh, but would just think he is the bee's knees, and they're running after him and saying, you should be, We you know what, why don't you be king? Because this was awesome, and that would be awesome. Um, so he is responding to their suggestions that he become king. Um, and when he does so, he begins to creep them out quite aggressively. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. So this is Jesus speaking to the people. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, right, they're thinking like, Okay, we got the bread and we got the fishes. Like, is he going to give us his flesh? That's gross. And I don't understand Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, let's make sure we understand, because this is, this is, this, I think this is crucial. This is absolutely central for this entire story. So, okay, so, it's connected with drinking his blood, right? Okay, so if you drink his blood and eat his flesh, then you are connected with him. Then you will dwell in him and he will dwell in you. Um, by drinking the blood of Christ shed for humanity, the life of Christ becomes yours, that life, to have life and to have it more abundantly. Right? That is the path to immortality. Right? Okay. Do you see the pattern that begins to emerge here? Remember Lucy and the perversion of good and holy loves. Right? Right? Instead of nurturing a child, she is drinking from it, right? She is sucking its blood and taking its life to herself instead of giving of her life to it, right? Vampirism offers immortality like Christianity, but it offers immortality perverted. It is a perversion of Christian salvation. Christ dies for you and rises from the dead, You drink his blood, you have his new life in you, and you are set free. Right? This is what the Gospel of John says. Dracula kills you, he doesn't die for you, he kills you, and you rise from the dead. He drinks your blood, and you are infected with his unlife, and you become his slave. You see? Again, it's like the same, like the inversion but really, more than the perversion. Just as Lucy uh, is the perversion of marital love and of mother love, so Dracula, in his vampirism, is a perversion of Jesus's love itself. It's he is there's this this anti parallel, um, this anti parallel between Dracula and Jesus. Do you see what I mean? Um. It is a perversion of a very similar kind to the perversion that we see uh, in Lucy with the mother love and the uh, uh, and the the marital love, um, and this anti-parallel between vampirism and Christianity comes up a lot in the story. Here's a passage that I skipped over at the time because we weren't ready to talk about it yet. Um, this is the first time Renfield escapes and goes. To Dracula's chapel door, right, and presses himself against it and is talking to him here. Um, I am here to do your bidding, master. I am your slave, and you will reward me, for I shall be faithful. I have worshipped you long and afar off. Now that you are near, I await your commands, and you will not pass me by, will you, dear master, in your distribution of good things? We read that before, but I skipped the next bit. He is a selfish old beggar anyhow, he thinks of the loaves and fishes, even when he believes he is in a real presence, says Dr. Seward. Um, I used to teach a Bible survey class uh, at uh, my college, and I, this, the, that passage was on the final exam. Um, anyway, he thinks of the loaves and fishes, even when he believes he is in a real presence. There are three different levels here. On the one hand... Doctor Seward is is recon- even though he doesn't know what's going on here, he doesn't. he thinks that this dude is just crazy and spouting manic nonsense. But yet he sees the parallel, right? That uh, Renfield is speaking to someone, presumably in his mad imagination, speaking to someone as one would speak to to Jesus, would speak to Christ, right? Believes he is in a real presence, um, but he is noting. Wait, the worship which Renfield appears to be offering to this, probably imaginary, person, which is like the worship offered unto Christ, is perverted. Right? Um, Instead of surrendering to Christ and worshipping him, Renfield is only in it for what he can get for himself. Right? He is a selfish old beggar. Right? Um, In fact, he is not like the disciples of Jesus in the Gospels. He's like the people who really like the loaves and fishes trick, and were chasing after him, saying, you should be king, and by the way, can we hang out with you all the time so that you can give us bread all the time and we don't ever have to worry about that, right? Renfield is like them, not like those who... And and those people all turn away and um, don't... and stop following Jesus after he does his whole flesh and blood thing, Um Renfield is like them. so. Again, so Doctor Seward perceives the very Christian-like language that that, that the, the, the the worship thing that's going on with Renfield here. Um, so he perceives, in a sense, though he doesn't understand it at all, the parallel between Dracula and Jesus. Perceives also uh, the sort of twisted that that sort of uh, twisted to selfishness version of that worship that Renfield is doing, and you notice the other thing, right? um the uh, the the real uh, the real presence reference this gets complicated. that's a communion reference that's what the Anglicans believe um, let me back up first and talk about the Catholics um why does it have to be why could? Van Helsing not have gone down the road to the, lo- the local Anglican church and gotten some communion wafers, apart from the fact they wouldn't possibly have given them to this wacky Dutch guy who shows up and says, can I borrow some wafers, please? Um, but apart from that reason, no, they have to be Catholic wafers. Why? What's the difference? What is the difference? And there is a difference. There was a difference then. There remains a difference to this day. Uh, it is true that the Catholic and Anglican doctrines of communion are closer to each other than either are to, like, evangelical Protestantism, but there is a difference. Yes, transubstantiation in one word is the answer. So, okay. Transubstantiation. This is uh, uh, this is Aristotle through St. Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, who's one of my favorite guys. I love Aquinas. Um, there is an inevitability, like you. There is no escape from a Thomas Aquinas proof. There's just there's no escape from when St. Thomas Aquinas gets you into a corner, he finishes you. Um, how does transubstantiation, transubstantiation work? Transubstantiation works with the the bread and the wine that are uh, that are that are that are uh, given in the mass are not a recollection of the body and blood of Christ. They are not a symbol of the body and blood of Christ. They are not... uh, uh, They are the body and blood of Christ. It is literally the body and blood of Christ. Does that mean that it changes its chemical composition and becomes meat? No. No. Not at all. It still remains bread. Transubstantiation. it's It's a scholastic, logical term. It means that the substance of the thing is changed. Transubstantiation means you take the substance of something and you switch it for another. Everybody knows all things have substance and accidents, to use the Latin terminology. Okay, That is, the accident of something is just its outward form. All things, like how it looks, smells, tastes, would appear under a microscope, those are all accidents of things. Right? They don't change What the thing is in its essence, the essence of the thing. And I say this only metaphorically mind, the soul of the thing, not literally the soul. The essence of a thing, what makes it what it is, right? That is its substance. And that is the thing that is miraculously changed in the Mass when the priest holds up the wafer and says, Hulk est corpus, this is the body. Right. By the way, that's where the word hocus pocus came from. Um, when the when the Catholic priest holds up the, the the wafer, and this is the moment where the miracle, where the magic happens, and he says hocus corpus. That's where the, it's a, a that an imitation of that uh, to do to do magic and say hocus pocus. Um, anyway, sorry, a um, uh, little irrelevant trivia. But when the priest says hocus corpus, the substance of the bread becomes. The body of Christ. It is still bread, its accidents remain bread, but its substance is the body of Christ. Not figuratively, not imaginatively, not uh, again, not in memory, uh, not symbolically, literally, the essence of the body of Christ. Therefore, the sacred wafer, after it's been blessed, up until that point when the miracle occurs, is just bread, right? But after it's been blessed, that is the most sacred thing that there is. That's why they're really... Because they know this. And that's why they're really impressed that he's carrying this around in a napkin with him and working it into putty and putting it up on the tomb door. This is not how Catholics behave generally with the host, right? Why would he use the to him most sacred of all things in this way, right? Because that is... Literally, the body of Christ, the flesh of Jesus, that He is putting around the door of the tomb. Okay. Uh, if any of you are thinking about Passover, you should be. But I don't even have to go there. Um, okay, you know, the posts and lintels and things. It's the flesh instead of the blood. But you got in the Passover lamb and the crucifixion and yeah, yeah, yeah. The more you think about it, the, the it's another one of those things. The more you think about it, the better it works. Okay, Anglicans uh, don't believe in transubstantiation. It doesn't literally go well. No, Arthur, we have to. D- d- you can't be shy about going there. Um, again, that is a core. Jesus was crucified on Passover weekend for a reason. The Gospels are full of this imagery. The idea of Jesus as the sacrificial Passover lamb um, is a core, core image um, of of the Christian tradition. You can't, you can't, you can't get away from that. Um, it's it's and again and, and yeah that the the doorpost thing is absolutely um, there's there's no question in my mind that that's a deliberate recollection of Passover there um, but anyway okay um, Anglicans real presence so in in the Anglican service they don't believe that that it's real it's literally actually spiritually the Body of Christ in the wafer, but they do believe that it's more than just a symbol. It's a sacrament, and the sa- a sacrament is a physical ritual in which you actually enact a spiritual action. It's not. It's not just a. It's not just a something that you, I, you know. Like evangelical Protestants do this in memory. You know, they 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 they're fond of quoting. They do this in remembrance of me, right? That's how they understand communion. You take the grape juice and you take the cracker and you're supposed to think about Jesus crucifying right Re- use this as a stimulus to your imagination to remember Christ's sacrifice that's the protestant's the sort of the more radical protestant conception of communion anglican is yes. a middle ground between the the catholic and the radical protestant view of communion uh, to an anglican Jesus there is a real presence that's the phrase that they use there is a real presence in communion um, it's not literally it's, you know, it's not actually his flesh, right? You're not actually drinking his blood and eating his flesh. It's not, it's not that literal, right? But spiritually Jesus is actually present in, um, in, that, um, in that moment, okay? Um, yeah, Philip, this is why Catholics don't allow non-Catholics to take communion because they don't understand what's going on. Right. From the Catholic viewpoint, they're taking this thing and they're just like, they pop it in their mouth and chew on it like they would a little piece of cracker. Or, I mean, I've gone to churches where they serve oyster crackers. I've gone to churches where they serve matzah. You know, whatever it is, if you just pop it in your mouth and chew on it like you would your memorial cracker, you're not getting what's going on here. Okay. So back to the passage here. Dr. Seward is kind of joking, right? I mean, he is a selfish old beggar anyhow. He thinks of the loaves and fishes even when he believes he's in a real presence. And yet, his words have more significance than he understands, right? The communion reference that he makes, the real presence reference that he makes, is more, much more relevant than he himself understands because he is in a real presence, um, but not, of course, the real presence of Jesus, um, remember. Th- so you know, again, the parallel but twisted. As even on some level, and not understanding what he's talking about, Doctor Seward himself um, uh, uh, perceives here. Think about the connections between Dracula and chapels, right? With the sacred and the unsacred earth. He has to bring the dirt from the chapel of his castle in Transylvania because he can only... And he's really glad that there's a chapel in his new house, which is an old house, right? Remember from that conversation with Jonathan. Um, Again, just like why do female vampires go after children, right? It's a perversion of a holy thing. Just as the dead, just as the holy dead, just as the saved dead... Just the bodies of saints who are awaiting resurrection, right, when the trump blows and they bring their tombstones with them to to, uh, to prove how good they was, as Mr. Swales would say. Remember Mr. Swales talking about death and the anticipation of resurrection? Just as saints in their graves, in their sanctified graves, are waiting for the for the resurrection, right? For the for the uh, for the second coming uh, and the call of the trumpet. Um, so Dracula, who rises every night, right, in this again twisted perversion of the resurrection of the body, also lies in sacred dirt. Again, just like Lucy going after children. Okay, that same kind of perversion. Um, even, um, even, um, uh, Gerald, the dirt in Dracula's grave is consecrated. Ground. Um, he he takes it from his chapel, which would have been consecrated. Yeah, I know. I, I think that's. I think that that's uh, at least that v- Van Helsing says that that's what he believes. Um, that it's in fact sacred dirt. Um, that he because there's a, there's plenty of unsacred dirt around, right? Um, but he brings his own supply of sacred dirt anyway. Um, there's some other parallels that are even just really like sort of brief and simple ones. But again, once you begin to see the picture, all these things begin to pop up, right? Both Jesus and Dracula um, can be found on a ship in the sea, right? What happens? What's the difference? What does Jesus do when he's on a ship in the sea? In the Sea of Galilee? Bible quiz! Yes! He calms the storm, right? There's a raging storm, and Jesus speaks to the storm and says, peace, be still, and the storm calms. What does Dracula do? Dracula makes a storm, right? He stirs up the storm and uses that storm uh, for his own uh, purposes. Um, Jesus walks on the water. Dracula can't cross the water. And um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Even, like, even, you know, again, like, it's everywhere. You begin to see it everywhere. Um, Even Lucy's own description of her experience on the night she was first bitten, remember what she compares it to? She compares it to drowning, right? It was like being underwater. There's like this baptismal imagery, almost baptismal imagery, that she uses. Uh, Again, this inversion, this perversion um, of that uh, of that um, moment as well. Therefore, again, I come back to the crucifix and the host, the Catholic host. It's not about Catholic versus Protestant, I, I don't think at all. It's the uh, about Catholic versus Protestant. It's about Jesus. It's about the body of Jesus. That's the thing that the crucifix and the host have in common, right? Right? Is that both of them have the body of Christ, whereas the Protestant versions of them don't? Um, so therefore, they are not. So notice, therefore, Dracula's thing—it's not about crosses, it's not about Christianity, it's certainly not about faith vaguely understood. It's Jesus Himself, who is Dracula's kryptonite, right? The the crucifix with the body of Christ crucified hanging on it, Christ shedding His blood so that others might have eternal life, right? That is what uh, repels Dracula and repels Lucy, right? It's the actual spiritual body of Christ, round up into putty and put on the doors that can absolutely prohibit, you know, uh, uh, um, Lucy from entering in. Um, Dracula's what? the the primary thing that opposes dracula is the one whose act he is fundamentally parodying the the jesus whose you know of, of whose career of whose great act dracula's existence is to use the phrase from earlier on a devilish mockery right just as lucy's presence, Lucy's actions, right, were a devilish mockery of her love and her purity, so Dracula's very existence is a devilish mockery of Jesus and Jesus's salvation itself. Yeah, Tom, I'm sometimes tempted to use the word antichrist to describe Dracula in that way, but it's impossible to use that word and not have it misunderstood. He is an antichrist in the sense that he is, uh, he is like the perverted opposite of Christ. Um, but, um, yeah, the unchrist is probably better, Jordan. Yeah, Sarah Lagarde was suggesting the same thing. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, no, so even another one that, that jumped out at me here, um, Before we do anything, let me tell you this Van Helsing again, uh, in lecturing mode. It is out of the lore and experience of the ancients, and of all those who have studied the powers of the undead. When they become such, there comes with the change the curse of immortality. See, it's a curse. It's not a blessing. It's not the gift. It's a curse. They cannot die. But must go on, age after age, adding new victims and multiplying the evils of the world. For all that die from the preying of the undead become themselves undead, and prey on their kind. And so the circle goes on, ever widening, like as the ripples from a stone thrown in the water." Friend Arthur, if you had met that kiss which you know of before poor Lucy die, or again last night when you opened your arms to her, you would in time, when you had died, have become Nosferatu, as they call it in Eastern Europe, and would all time make more of those undeads that have so filled us with horror. Um, yeah. Uh, Nancy, I think that... I don't think it would work with a literal kiss. I believe what... Uh, what he's telling arthur here uh here is uh when she said like on her deathbed when she said kiss me right to arthur had he done that she'd uh, she done more. she she she'd have bitten him that that's she was just trying to draw him in and she would have chomped him um so yeah I, I i don't think he's saying that like had their lips met he would have become a vampire i don't i don't think so again it there's no real evidence that vampires actually have kissing on their minds. Um, you know, again, the idea that vampires are, um, I find it ironic. You know, people talk about, like, oh, the vampires are just, they're they're obsessed with sex. No, they're not. They're not even interested in sex, right? They're interested in manipulating your desire for sex in order to get what they want, but again, what they want is an exchange of bodily fluids, but not that one, right? Um, Uh, Yeah, so uh, Brandon says, uh, are they, so what they really are doing is betraying you with a kiss? Uh, Yeah, something like that, Brandon. Yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of more or less how it works, actually. Um, Yeah, yeah. um, um, And so the, and so the circle expands. Um, All right. um, So, for my next trick... <laughs> yes, it's an unkiss, Ian, uh exactly, exactly. For our next trick, um the next thing I want to show you is uh is what an ardent feminist Bram Stoker is. You ready? You ready for me to prove that this book uh is an is an adamantly feminist book, All right? All right, let's do this. Let's do this. see I'm feeling I'm I'm on a roll here tonight, right? Let's let's keep going. Let's keep going. Okay, here is Dr. Seward meeting Mina, right? He's just met Mina, and he's brought her back to the lunatic asylum, right? And here's him worrying about Mina. She told me that if she might, she would come presently to my study, as she had much to say. So here I am, finishing my entry in my phonograph diary whilst I await her. As yet, I have not had the chance of looking at the papers which Van Helsing left with me, though they lie open before me. I must get her interested in something, so that I, I may have an opportunity of reading them. She does not know how precious time is, or what a task we have in hand. I must be careful not to frighten her. Here she is. Um, now, um, we can see his assumptions, right? Perfectly plain. Um. Even though Van Helsing has told him I am bringing these two in because they are crucial to our cause, right? The the whole introduction of Mina was because she's helpful, right, to their cause. See what, what Dr. Seward has assumed? Notice the series of things Dr. Seward has assumed. Oh, let us count the assumptions Dr. Seward is making here. Assumption number one. If Mr. and Mrs. Harker are going to be of some use to them and, and know, you know, have information about their hunt for 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 the vampire it's obviously Mr. Harker who has that right, and not Mrs. Harker she's obviously not the useful one, it's Mr. Harker obviously, who's going to be the useful one she's just kind of the Mrs. along for the ride, and he has to find some way to entertain her to keep her out of the way while the men do the men things, right, so that's assumption number one. Assumption number two notice, assumption number two also implies that he assumes the, that Jonathan would not tell his wife, right? So Mr. Harker obviously has some information about, that is useful to our cause because that's why they're coming in, but obviously he's not going to tell his wife, right? So she, needless to say, must be ignorant of the entire thing because no one would tell his wife about something like that, right? So obviously she is totally uh, in the dark about what's going on. And three she must be protected from any possible knowledge of this because there is no way she could handle it, right? I mean, she's just a woman, right? She does not know how precious time is or what a task we have. I must be careful not to frighten her, right? Because those women, right, you just, you can't, you just can't treat them too delicately, right? Because everybody knows there is no way that they could, uh, that they could handle this. And we see even as he's reading the stuff, and he knows she wrote it, or that she typed it, right? He knows, she knows all this stuff, right? Um, it's not just that, Yet, yeah, James, he does have the brandy close to hand, as you see, right? He's, he's, he's ready, right? He's totally prepared. Um, notice, it's not just her amount of previous knowledge or her ability to handle that knowledge that he makes assumptions about. Uh, look! Look at how we how we go on. Um, this is her having just listened to his phonograph diary, and she was touched, right? And she was like, "Oh, you know that it is cruelly true, right?" She, I, I can, you know, uh, uh, I, I, I I can hear your, you know, your heart in your very words. Um, and he's like, "No one need ever know. Shall ever know." I said in a low voice. She laid her hand on mine and said very gravely, "Ah." but they must. Must? But why? I asked. Because it is a part of the terrible story, a part of poor dear Lucy's death and all that led to it. Because in the struggle which we have before us to rid the earth of this terrible monster, we must have all the knowledge and all the help which we can get. I think that the cylinders which you gave me contain more than you intended me to know. But I can see that there are in your record many lights to this dark mystery. You will let me help, will you not?' "'I know all up to a certain point, and I see already, though your diary only took me to 7 September, how poor Lucy was beset, and how her terrible doom was being wrought out. Jonathan and I have been working day and night since Professor Van Helsing saw us. He has gone to Whitby to get more information, and he will be here tomorrow to help us. We need have no secrets amongst us. Working together, and with absolute trust, we can surely be stronger than if some of us were in the dark.' She looked at me so appealingly, and at the same time manifested such courage and resolution in her bearing that I gave in at once to her wishes. Okay. See what just happened here? Two really important things. First, Mina demonstrates something. It's not just that she knows more than he thinks she knows, which wouldn't be hard because he thinks she knows nothing. It's not just that she can handle it it's not that she has a fuller appreciation than he does of uh, what were her words the task uh, the, where's the, the, the dark mystery where's the, the task that they have before us um, now I'm forgetting that I'm, I'm losing the phrase, anyway, the struggle, there it is the, in the struggle which we have before us to rid the earth of this terrible monster, there it is um, she knows right she understands wh- so <clears throat> but notice it's not just that she in fact has much more knowledge than he thinks it's not just that he has much more knowledge than than she she has much more knowledge than he does <clears throat> it's more than that she sees much more in the in the information that he had right <clears throat> he was there with lucy right leading up to it he now knows the key it was a vampire that's what killed lucy right but he has not yet pieced together he's Dr. Seward knows less about the stuff that he went through with Lucy than we do, right when we were piecing through what really happened, he still doesn't get it. He's not figured it all out yet. she does right She reads this stuff and she's like, oh, "I see what really happened, right She is able to play the what really happened game just like we did right so again, it's not just that she has more information; she is quicker and better at drawing conclusions from the data that she has than Dr. Seward is. He is slow compared to her. Right? So again, it's not just that he assumes she's been kept in the dark and should be because women are fragile and need to be protected. She's smarter than he is. She's quicker than he is. Um, and... uh Yeah, yeah, good, exactly. Um, So, that's one part, right? One thing that we see in here uh, is that not only does he underestimate her woefully, we also see that she is not only smarter, she is also wiser than he is, right? His impulse is, we must protect her and keep her in the dark. And what does she say, right? You, uh, You will let me help. Will you not? She understands. She anticipates. I know the assumptions you're going to make, right? I can guess how this is going to go. You're going to try to protect me from this. You're not going to let me participate. You're not going to let me serve alongside you pack of men, right, in order to carry on this struggle which we have before us, right? Um, But she she already makes an argument in anticipation of that. She makes an argument for it. No, please don't treat me like a woman. Okay? Um, we need have no secrets amongst us. Working together and with absolute trust, we can surely be stronger than if some of us were in the dark. Right? Um, yes, Kimber, she is brave. Uh, she is in for the terrible struggle, knowing well what happened to Lucy and what almost happened to her, her husband. She, she understands that far better than, than, than Dr. Seward does, and she's in for it, right? She's, she's, she's up for that. Um, and she sees their best chance is to use all of the resources that they have, and that includes hers, right? And again, she knows where this is going to go. Right, she knows how men think. Here's Van Helsing, one of my favourite Van Helsing speeches. Ah, that wonderful Madame Mina, she has man's brain, a brain that a man should have, were he much gifted, and a woman's heart. The good God fashioned her for a purpose, believe me, when he made that so good combination. Friend John, up to now fortune has made that woman of help to us. For after tonight, she must not have to do with this so terrible affair. Wait, what? Okay, the good God fashioned her for a purpose, believe me, when he made that so good combination. About face. Friend John, up to now, fortune has made that one... Fortune, by a stroke of good luck, fortune has made that woman of help to us. After tonight, she must not have to do with this so terrible affair. It is not good that she run a risk so great. We men are determined, nay, are we not pledged, to destroy this monster, but it is no part for a woman. Even if she be not harmed, her heart may fail her in so much and so many horrors, and hereafter she may suffer, both in waking from her nerves and in sleep from her dreams. And besides, she is young woman and not so long married. There may be other things to think of sometime, if not now. You tell me she has wrote all, then she must consult with us. But tomorrow she say goodbye to this work, and we go alone. I agreed heartily with him. Um by the way uh do you, did you get the reference to uh the that a lot of people miss this what's he worried about he's kind of vague about it there the uh yeah the uh besides she is young woman and not so long married yeah exactly she might be pregnant is what he's getting at right this acknowledgement that J- Jonathan and Amina are now sexually active right because they're married so yeah she could be pregnant right and you and you know women who are pregnant or might become pregnant should uh, consult with their physician before pursuing uh, a crusade against a vampire. So um, that's uh, yeah yeah clearly. Um, Van Helsing is so adorable. he tries, right? He genuinely likes and, what's more, admires Mina, right? Clearly, genuinely admires Mina. Um, I know that the whole man's brain thing <laughs> doesn't really sit well as a compliment, right? But notice that even Van Helsing doesn't just stick with that as a as a as a as a compliment, right? He clarifies. Um, he clarifies a brain that a man should have were he much gifted. Right. It's it's not just like, wow, like her female brain, she has an extraordinary brain for a woman. She's like almost as smart as a man. Right. It's not just that. I mean, you can easily parody what he's saying and goodness knows he asks for it. Um, But no, no, he says like she has the brain of a gifted man. The, The whole man's brain thing. He's acknowledging the cultural stereotype, the cultural expectation and the cultural expectation as we already clearly saw in Dr. Seward is that the woman isn't going to be is not going to be able to 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 put up with much and she's not going to be very bright, right? And he is acknowledging this is not true of Mina. She is as smart as a highly gifted man. So her brains can compete with anybody's brains, right? And she has a woman's heart and the good God fashioned her for a purpose, believe me when he made that so good combination. She has all the good things, right? And Gerald asks is that an indirect slight to dr. Seward no I don't think so I don't think he's uh, he's saying is she smarter than you if she is clearly smarter than dr. Seward um, I don't think that Van Helsing is trying to uh, suggest that exactly James so let's leave her out right you see the slippage right he has just said the good God fashioned her for a purpose there is a reason Mina is here right this incredible gift so let's let's prevent her from being involved in any way right why does why does she um how does he not understand this as a contradiction how can he not understand that those two sentences seem to con- because right what he's saying is the good god fashioned her for a purpose and we don't want that purpose wrecked so she has some purpose; we don't know what it's gonna be down the road, right? some awesome purpose that she has um but we need to preserve her for that purpose and you know she is still a woman, and she's not gonna be able to be uh she's not gonna be able to handle what's going on right um There's no way she could possibly stand up to. The you know with the, the nerves and the nightmares and everything that's you know this is this is going to be too much for her. So uh, and 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 if she gets wrecked, you know, if her nerves are wrecked, and she get then uh, then you know whatever the purpose was that the good God intended her for is not going to happen, right? Unless you doofus, it's this purpose, right? Um, unless by f- unless fortune has made her of help to you because this is her purpose, right? But but that doesn't happen. Why doesn't that happen? Because his mind is closed, right? He is not open to the possibility that it is this purpose that is in fact what her purpose is, right? Dr. Van Helsing is making the mistake that he himself is always speaking against. Ah, Oh dear. Now look what he himself says When they're together having their uh, having their little power meeting right that night well you know what we have to contend against but we too are not without strength we have on our side power of combination a power denied to vampire kind and we have sources of science we are free to act and think and the hours of the day and night are ours equally in fact so far as our powers extend they are unfettered and we are free to use them We have self-devotion in a cause and an end to achieve, which is not a selfish one. These things are much. Remember that centrifugal and centripetal uh, desires that Dr. Seward was talking about, about Renfield at the beginning, right? Whether you're selfish uh, or selfless devoted to a cause, right? Comes up again here. Anyway, yeah, so we have the power of combination. Yes, Arthur, it does. His implication is that vampires, by their evil nature, do not cooperate. We've seen evidence of this. Right? Look how disobedient those female vampires were. Right? He told them, don't touch this guy. I've got purposes for him. Right? And there they go. First chance they get. Right? Trying to trying to suck his blood and he's how dare you touch him, any of you? Right? They do not... They're not team players. Right? Not at all team players. Um, so, uh... So yeah, okay, so they have power of combination. So they're free to act and think, unless you restrict how some of your members act and think. Um, uh, uh, So far as our powers extend, they're unfettered, unless we fetter them, right? And we are free to use them, unless we prevent that. Think how closely this echoes what Mina herself said to Dr. Seward earlier, and again, Mina... Is there faster than Van Helsing is? Right. She anticipates this very speech. Except, unlike Van Helsing, she's applying it to herself. Right. Our best chance is to use all of the resources that we have available. We must stick together with absolute trust. Trust. Right. That is to believe to trust me that I am capable of. It. But no. Right. Um, Van Helsing doesn't go there. Right. Um, so um Yes, so we see the irony right we see the irony and of course Mina disapproves right she sees it coming the fact that she predicts it doesn't make it easier right and now for you Madame Mina this night is the end until all be well you are too precious to us to have such risk When we part to-night, you must no more question. We shall tell you all in good time. We are men, and are able to bear. But you must be our star and our hope, and we shall act all the more free that you are not in the danger such as we are. All the men, even Jonathan, seemed relieved. But it did not seem to me good that they should brave danger and perhaps lessen their safety, strength being the best safety, through care of me. But their minds were made up, and though it was a bitter pill for me to swallow, I could say nothing save to accept their chivalrous care of me. Good, Erica points out that bad things also happened when they kept Lucy's mom out of the loop. Yeah, there they had more than just her X chromosomes to to concern them, right? They had the whole heart issue as well, but yeah, exactly, the fact that they didn't tell her that they, they were keeping her so much in the dark did lead to the night when she came in and cleared away the garlic and opened the windows disastrously, right? Um, yeah, Lee Smith is pointing out the irony of the sentence, we are men and able to bear, uh, <laughs> but you are a woman and able to bear children. Yeah, yeah, that is, uh, that, is that is kind of, uh, kind of ironic. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Carita, she isn't saying that they're right. But she acknowledges that their hearts are in the right place. She knows that they only—they mean well, right? They're trying to protect her. They want to—they're trying to be chivalrous, right? She understands. But she thinks it's foolish, right? She thinks it's foolish. She thinks they're making the wrong decision. And she's right. She's right based on her own reasoning, as she's shown. She is right based on Van Helsing's reasoning, which he has twice given and twice himself ignored, right? we are better in combination. The good God made her for a purpose when he made that so-good combination, right? Um, And yet, no, we won't go there and we won't do that. So, I said I was going to prove that Bram Stoker is a feminist, right? But we're still a ways away from that, right? I mean, after all, uh, maybe this is just us. I mean, we're very sensitive to the irony here, But would an 1897 man reading this be sensitive to that irony, right? Um, That is to say, is this something that we are projecting into this book? Or is this something that this story is actually giving us? How can we know? How can we be sure? Stay tuned next time when we return to the theme of Bram Stoker is really a feminist, see? Um, We will also, of course... Come back to Renfield, because we have the culmin- We will have the culmination uh, of, uh, of, of Renfield's contributions to the story um, in our next time. And, of course, we will talk a good deal more about wonderful Madame Mina. Thanks very much for joining me tonight, everybody. Um, and I look forward to continuing down with you next week. Thanks very much. Bye now.